0: So let me make a couple of things clear about this series. We've called it Chazal uh, in the Age of Empires, and that's really a fancy title for an overview of the Talmudic period, one of the, I mean, every period in Jewish history is phenomenally influential and impactful, but this particular period really sets the tone of uh, the following couple of thousand years that leads up to today and is pivotal if we are to understand where we are coming from as a nation and where we are going. Who was at the lecture on uh, Tuesday night? Good, so you saw the framework. And who was not at the lecture on f- Tuesday night? Okay, no problem, so a minority there, but I will. you'll catch up shortly. What I want to do, just first of all, is to contextualise things. I also want to just add uh, a couple of things to the introduction not about myself but about the talks because a couple of people have asked me if you look at the brochure if you look at the brochure you will see that I'm giving a billion talks <laughs> on on women so people go oh I don't need to go and see that then because I'll go into every single one of those talks is different It may come as no shock to you to realize that there's more than just two or three women in Jewish history that are important. And I didn't ask for all the women talks. They were selected by the various organizations. But when I saw the brochure, I was both alarmed and delighted uh, to have the opportunity to speak uh, so extensively. But please be aware that each of those talks is different. Yesterday, for example, uh, in the first of those talks, I spoke about two women. I spoke about Shlomzi on Hamalka, I spoke about Bruria, but in future talks we will be mixing it all up and I'll generally take two women and try and connect them. Everybody follow that? So if anybody asks you that, say no. I definitely heard him say that they are different talks. It's not entirely clear from the brochure. This, for example, this talk, which we are giving three weeks in a row on Chazal and the Age of Empires, is a series. So it is not that I am giving a talk now and then I'm going to be repeating it another two times. Does everybody follow that? It's a series. And hopefully there'll be like episodes with a cliffhanger at the end (laughs) to have you coming back. I need to show you now exactly what we are going to talk about because context in Jewish history is everything. We're giving many talks in this program, some on philosophy, some on Bible, some on Jewish history. And there is no more important exercise when we talk about Jewish history than context. What exactly are we speaking of and where is it happening? I don't want any of you running out of the room screaming in confusion and panic. If you're sitting here and it looks like from the window inside your mind that you're on the precipice of confusion, please let me know and we'll fix it up. If I don't already see it, I'm already seeing in some people's faces confusion. Even They're sitting there going, he's been talking for two minutes and he's said nothing. <laughs> but it's just to settle everyone's energy. Watch very carefully. I'm assuming these are not permanent markers. Huh? But we'll find out. It's not my problem with that. That line, that line... We're going to call that line Jewish history. I mean, the other night we did it in the wall, the four walls of the room. Now I'm going to flat dimension that out, and we're going to call this Jewish history. That's zero. This is 2,000. I'm using the years as we count them now, and that's going to be minus 2,000. And so this would be minus 1,000. This would be 1,000. And then we can fill in the... 500-year chunks. Alright, does everybody follow what I've done here on the board? Yep. We're going to look at a period of Jewish history in this series, and by the way, I mean it goes without saying that I'm speaking to a variety of people in this room, a variety of backgrounds, a variety of interests, variety of knowledge, so I always speak to the lowest common denominator, which is myself. We assume nothing. But if you're sitting there, and I constantly say this to audiences, if, I'm, if you're sitting there and you're going, this is way too basic, I learned this in kindergarten, I don't need to revise it, take me deeper, give me some hardcore controversial scholarship on this, I want an adventure, then let me know but before we have the adventure and believe me by the time we finish this series hopefully we'll have some adventures but we have to lay the basic groundwork of the actual historical picture that we have everybody follow so i'm relying on you to feed back to me to go higher or lower but the period we're going to talk about in this series is this one 0 to 500 0 to 500 This period here, (coughs) excuse me, we came down, we came from summer, so suddenly landing in winter, it picked up winter stuff. Do you know what I mean? It's outrageous that I've got a cold in February. It's disgusting. This period that precedes the period we're going to talk about is a period known in Jewish history. Those of you who were there the other night, or those who know anyway, know that this period is called. Bayit Sheni, very, very good. Bayit Shani. that's the second temple period, which we spoke about briefly the other night. Complex period, various sub-periods. But by the time we open up zero, the second temple is really in very, very advanced stage of its historical tenure. The Romans are in town. And when I say the Romans are in town, it means that Iyudea, Judea, the Roman province is occupied heavily by the Romans. And it is a, uh, a pretty important outpost uh, of the Roman world. And so much so that it was the uh, province of Judea was, in fact, granted a fair amount of autonomy. We had our own king, who was really descended from the Hasmonean dynasty that had just preceded the Roman invasion. And that king, although called king in the context of what was happening in Judea, was nevertheless a vassal of Rome. That king had autonomy within Judea, but couldn't really move beyond what Rome wanted. Everybody follow that? I'm now going to... Now, here's the bit I don't want people to get confused. I'm going to rub this off the board. Don't do that. Don't do that, David. That was really clear. Don't do that. And I'm going to zoom in. I'm going to draw another line. And I'm going to call this zero and this 500. So we can zoom in on that period that I just circled. And remember, I'm laying it down so that by the time we get to the second or third part of this series, we'll really know where we are, and I won't have to give these introductions. 100, 200, 300, 400. Let's talk about the beginning of that period, and let's find out what the world looks like. What does the world look like? Well, as you know from the other night, that is the Mediterranean. Fantastic. Very, very much not to scale so that we can really understand it. That's going to be Spain, Italy, Greece, Turkey, the land, what is now Turkey, the land of Israel, Egypt, this is going to be North Africa, this is going to be what was Babylon. The basic picture that we need to understand to get to terms with the key themes of this period, the basic picture is that the known world of which we are concerned is for them in general terms, divided into two fundamental domains. Two fundamental domains. These are not simple domains, they are complex domains. Always remember that every time you look at something in history, we must always remind ourselves that very, very little in history is actually homogenous. We might have a label for something, but that label stands for something very complex. But overall, we have two fundamental domains. One domain we don't have a green, do we? No. no. It's on the floor. Oh. Behind the chair. Oh. Well done, Mill. <laughs> I made a big deal with Mel the other day. Get me a green, I need a green. One domain is looking something like this. And the other domain is looking something like this. This domain on the left that I have circled in red, and remember, we're approximating and it's general, but this domain I have circled in red is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. Now, those of you who are a little familiar with Roman history will know that the Roman Empire, by the time we open here in the year zero... The Roman Empire has not actually been the Roman Empire for very long. The concept that Rome is an empire and has an emperor is a relatively new concept in Roman history. What was it until just a few decades before here? It was a republic. Always remember that republics eventually become empires before they disintegrate. That will happen to the United States that will happen to every republic that rises. We cannot see that now in our age, but it will happen. We are told that. Marx was right. <laughs> but that's another thing. Don't, go, don't, freak out, don't freak out at that statement. <laughs> Sorry? That's, I, I, I will address that in the second or third talk. <laughs> so Rome is now no longer uh, a republic, it's actually an empire, and there's one very, very big dude sitting in Rome calling himself first citizen Caesar, and that, of course, is Augustus. O- Augustus. Octavian who became Augustus. Octavian Augustus is so immense a figure, so. Overwhelming in terms of his influence in creating the structures that we know to become the Roman Empire, that even for hundreds of years after his death, people still thought he was alive. Herod, Herod, who is the local king, who I spoke about very, very briefly on Tuesday night, Herod is dead round about the year zero. He's died just two or three years before and the circumstances of his death and the circumstances the historical conditions surrounding Herod's death are a fascinating topic in themselves but they happen just prior to the advent of where I want to talk about Octavian ultimately and the Roman administration ultimately decide that they are no longer going to appoint really one autonomous Jewish king in Judea and the first thing they do is they divide the country up into several provinces between Herod's sons, between Archelaus and Philip and Herod Antipater, and just a general break up and say, well, you can have that bit, you can have that bit, you can have that bit, but be aware that none of you have the same power we gave to Daddy. You actually will just be like a little local warlord and you will do exactly what we say. What we're going to do is we're going to send a series of governors to this protectorate. Judea will now become a protectorate province of Rome. So that's the first thing we need to understand about what's about to happen. There is a shift once Herod has died. It's also important to realise, and I touched on this, and you'll see how much I touched on the other night, that's important for us to lay the foundations of what we're going to look at, is that, and I won't spend too much time on this now, but it's very important to be aware that at this particular point in history, there are two competing visions of what Judaism actually is, which is very, very similar, very similar in a way to the Jewish world of today. Doesn't mean that there are just two visions today. We have a variety of visions, but there is a type of fault line within the Jewish world that's looking at two or more possible visions or pictures of what Judaism is and what legacy we're going to take into the future. And I'm referring, for example, to the basic, basic idea of Orthodox versus Reform Judaism, if we were to look at some sort of parallel today. But there, the basic split was between the Purushim, which (laughs) are obviously familiar in English as the Pharisaic class, but we do not like to talk about the Pharisaic class because that word was used so pejoratively in the New Testament. But it is, in fact... A Hebrew word the Prushim were those sages and rabbis who were concerned with the dimension of the oral Torah and connection with the people. they really were the ones who were responsible for founding Judaism as a spiritual uh, a spiritual framework for this ethnic projection called the Jewish people into history, whereas the Sadducees were much more focused on a specific point being the temple and the sacrifices and the laws of purity and impurity. (laughs) Not that the temple wasn't important to the rabbis or not that the uh, Torah was not important to the Sadducees, but there were high levels of emphasis and throughout the preceding couple of of centuries, that conflict had in fact brought the Jewish people to civil war under some of the latter Hasmonean kings who aligned themselves with the Sadducees. One of the big turning points, one of the big turning points in the career of Herod was Herod's decision, through a range of factors, to align himself with the Pharisaic faction. It's not that he suddenly became an Orthodox Jew, it's not that suddenly he was sitting around spending his time learning Torah and going to the mikveh, but he aligned himself with the Pharisaic class because he needed them to keep the population calm while Herod went about being Herod. And one of the things that Herod did was rebuild the entire temple. And when we say rebuild the entire temple, he didn't just add an extra patio. He rebuilt it brick by brick, the entire structure. He created, everybody's familiar with the temple mount as it is today, that huge platform that sits you know on top, when you're standing at the at the Kotel at the Western Wall and whatever it is above that huge platform that was constructed and founded by Herod and he turned the temple into the largest and most magnificent religious structure in the world people were raving about it the project of rebuilding was so extensive that even here when the Romans were attacking it, there were still workmen on the, on, on the platform, you know, doing final renovations even decades after Herod died. It was a very big building project, and he needed the assistance of the Pharisaic class and their connections with the people to effect that. And it's always worth remembering that uh, uh, having built the temple, one of the things that precipitated uh, a little mini rebellion. There was the fact that when he, having finished the temple, Herod then decided it would be a good idea to stick a huge golden Roman eagle on the gates of the temple. Uh, that then was removed, and Herod's last order was to hunt down and find the people who had were responsible for that and burn them publicly. Herod, to his last breath, was a vassal of Rome. What does that mean? It means that he believed that the interests of the Jewish people lay in an alliance with Rome. That the last thing the Jewish people needed was to upset the Romans. Very, very similar in some ways to some of the discussions that happen in the Jewish world today. This is when we look with hindsight in Jewish history and we see themes that never really go away. I'm not here to discuss my or anyone else's political views. I'm only pointing out where some themes are in parallel. For example, people who today say that Israel has to go its own way and not worry about what world powers think, is an example of that type of thinking. Herod was convinced that Rome was the direction that the Jewish people should be taking. There was no harm, in fact, only gain to be had by an alliance with Rome, but Herod's died and his sons are vying for control. The big year that's going to concern us, and what I want to do today in the remaining... Uh, I'm, I'm going to speak, hopefully, till uh, 1.05 or whatever. We'll have 10 minutes for questions. So in the next half an hour or so, what I want to do is more or less get up to here, because I need to lay the found- yeah, is, is You're laughing. Is that a problem? No, sir. No. <laughs> and so that we can lay the fact You know you know what it's like when someone starts laughing when you say something. You never know. Are they laughing with me, laughing at me? Laughing? So we can... Uh, lay the foundations of what is going to happen after here. You'll soon find that uh, by the second series, people will sit here terrified of giving me any facial expression whatsoever. Don't (laughs) worry, I'm not going to read everyone's thing. Now, the year that's going to concern us first is the year six. What happened, anyone familiar with what happened in the year six? The year six is a very, very pivotal year in the developments that are going to take place. Because in the year six, sorry? Is that when the prophets started going out into the... No, that would, that's about 800 years earlier. No, so. I meant the is uh, No, 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 not yet. No, 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 no. You mean his apostles and so on. Apostles. No, 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 that's, that's later in the century. No one's heard of Jesus in the year six that we're aware of. In the year six, the Romans decide that they need to take a census of the population of Judea. The, the, the famous Fiscus Judaicus. Why do you need a census? Why do the Romans want a census? Tax. Hello. There's one word answer. Tax. They want to know how much tax they can expect so that when they put an administration in place, they know what they're meant to be getting. Jews have never wanted, never liked being counted. We don't like being counted. If you, if you go back to the Bible, you'll even see that King David got in trouble for counting the people. There's, we have a thing about being counted. We don't like it. and We especially don't like it if we know that the Romans, the occupation in town, are doing it simply so that they can work out their tax. So there is a mini revolt. There's a little mini revolt there. And that revolt is put down very quickly by the Romans because it's not terribly organised and it's put down effectively, quickly and brutally. That revolt doesn't really raise a massive headline in Jewish history but most historians realise that the rebellion over the Fiscus Judaicus in year 6 is the, in a sense, one of the sparks of the powder keg that's going to split the Jewish world. Because the most famous thing, everybody who's studied first century Palestine, and I said the other night, I said the other night that if we were to meet for three or four hours every day for the next six months, we probably wouldn't get through all of the aspects of this century. So by necessity, we have to summarize. But the great summary that everybody knows, you know, if you read the first page of First Century Palestine 101, That book doesn't exist, but it should. You will learn that what is the most distinguishing feature of first century Palestine, apart from all the events and phenomena and personalities, what is the most greatest, most known characteristic? Factions. Factionalism within the Jewish world. Now, for that reason, some people say, oh, (laughs) what is the most the closest historical parallel to our age, and you hear this a lot, first century Palestine, because look at the Jewish world today, it's full of factions. Look at first century Palestine, full of factions. People will make that parallel, but in fact, the Jewish world today is a picture of unity compared to what was going on here. Before we just touch on some of the major factions, one more thing that's very important for us to understand historically, to get the full picture, is that unlike previous, well, no, not, not unlike, but it's important to realize that although the land of Israel is the center of the Jewish world, and by far the great majority of Jews are living in the land of Israel, we have a growing and impressive diaspora. We have a community in Babylon, in Babylonia, Now, Babylon, remember I said there are two domains? I didn't finish telling you what the second domain was. This domain is the Roman Empire. This domain is loosely termed as the Persian Empire, but really what's going on here is the Parthian Empire that is going to go till about here and then collapse, and then we're going to get the newly reconstructed Sassanid Empire with its own religious upheavals, its own political revolutions, Everything that's going to go, and we're going to look at that, everything that's going on in the Roman Empire has a parallel that's going on in the Persian Empire, and smack in the middle, the core of which is the remnant of the original Babylonian community, but now supplemented by a whole lot of people who are getting away from the Romans and thinking, oh, I'll go and live there. We have a very, very dynamic community in Alexandria. Super dynamic. That is the New York of its day, Alexandria. Alexandria. Seriously, something like a million Jews are living in Alexandria and they have hundreds of places of worship, very dynamic, very involved community throwing up some of the most remarkable personalities of Jewish history. And we even have a Jewish community in Rome itself. So all over here we are starting to get a picture of A growing dynamic diaspora, but without a doubt, the center is still in the land of Israel, and even communities outside are, in a sense, deferential to what's going on, because what is in Jerusalem? What do we have in Jerusalem? The The temple. temple. And so long as the temple is there, you know, it's, it's difficult for us to gain the consciousness of what it is for the Jewish people to have a temple. In fact, it's only been a couple of generations that we've got used to this idea that we actually have the land of Israel under our own autonomous sovereignty. But the idea that we would have a temple is so out of our consciousness. But when it happens, uh, it has an effect. All the Jewish world really defers to what's going on here. Most of the factions that arise in first century Palestine arise as a consequence or as a response to the challenge of the Roman occupation. That's what's important also about the year six, because the census and the subsequent rebellion in the year six led to many of the factions that are going to play a very big part in this century. It doesn't mean that the anti-Roman factions really got going here. They didn't really get going for another few decades. But the factionalism. In general, works along the lines of how do we respond to the Roman occupation? Either we are going to utterly oppose it, and those factions became known, and it's a very, very important word, and it's a very, very loaded word, so people need to be very careful when they use this word. And historians and scholars, of course, climb all over this word, and you've got various opinions. So please don't panic when I say this word because it's going to lead some people to go, oh my gosh. But the word is zealots. In Hebrew, we know that word as... Kanaim. The zealots. Now, some people think that the zealots who on the whole are defined by a highly anti-Roman attitude that some people think of the zealots as a homogeneous block, but the zealots were anything but a homogeneous block. Within the zealots themselves, you had left and right wing zealots. The most hardcore extreme of the zealots were, of course, a subfaction of the zealots, known as the very good the Sicari they were assassinating collaborators. They would go around and they would simply use their knives, the sicarii, and they would kill people who they felt were collaborating with the Romans. That was the most hardcore of the zealot faction, but there were many, and the zealot faction also ran across the other lines that we spoke about, the Pharisaic versus Sadducean lines that we're talking about. These are political groupings, but these factions become more and more accentuated as the century moves on. At the same time that all this political turmoil is happening, Rome is consistently sending governors who are, on the whole, not particularly nice people. (laughs) And on the whole, not particularly well disposed to Jewish interests. They may have been the governor of the Protectorate of Judea, but if they were good to the Jews at all, it was primarily because being good to the Jews helped keep the peace. Their interests were fundamentally Roman. They were Roman. There were Roman soldiers and Roman politicians that were ruling Eudea. The Romans also had to agree and acquiesce to all the religious structures that were happening. They had to approve the appointment of the high priest. They had to approve the appointment of spiritual leadership. Obviously, I'm going to give headlines of this century, but it's important to remember just how complex this is. So those of you who are interested in going into this area, please remember that I'm only giving headlines. But if we are to give headlines... I mean, look, Octavian dies in... Augustus dies in... ..14. The next emperor is Tiberius. Obviously, it was the year 22 that they founded the city of Tiberius and named it after Tiberius but one major turning point happens in the year 37 because in the year 37 we get a now <laughs> we get a new emperor and it's important to realize this all of the emperors with the possible exception of Octavian all of the emperors, and maybe Tiberius, all of the emperors were insane. They were crazy. If you are the absolute ruler of the Roman Empire, this is not like the President of the United States who has a, an executive cabinet and a congress and all these things that put a hold on his power. This is someone who wakes up in the morning and his will is absolute through most of the known world. That can send someone a bit potty but the guy who came to the throne in the year 37 was the nutsest of them all and I'm talking of course about Gaius Caligula the dude made his horse a senator now it just so happens and this is a very important highlight to understand because it's very influential it and, and also you'll come across it and you go oh yeah I've heard about this but how does it fit in It just so happened that Caligula was at school. You know, Caligula, you can imagine, being part of the royal family in Rome, would have got a fairly good education. He was at school with a grandson of Herod. The descendants of the Hasmonean kingship were also sent to Rome to get a good Roman education. And the grandson of Herod was a school chum of Gaius Caligula. So when Caligula became emperor, he said to his old school chum, Agrippa, why don't you go back to Judea and become king? And Agrippa didn't need to be asked twice, and Agrippa went back. So for a period of four or five years here, in this window, we once again return to having our own autonomous kingship, under Roman rule, but we have a king. And Agrippa, by all accounts, was a good guy. Everybody liked him. The Pharisees liked him. He was cool. He gave a few... speeches. He was, they reg- people regarded him as one of us. So people were very happy with that situation. Unfortunately, Agrippa died early. During this period of Gaius's, Gaius Caligula's rule on the throne, just when we thought he was, couldn't get any more insane, you know... It's really because of Octavian during the, late, during the latter years of Octavian that this new idea creeps into Roman society that the emperor is not just a human, that the emperor is also in some way divine. This became especially acute when emperors died. Then they would set up temples and statues. People would worship those statues. Gaius says you know, I don't really think I need to wait until I die to become divine. I actually wouldn't mind being (coughs) divine right now. So he orders a decree throughout the Roman Empire, particularly in Judea, where every township needs to have a statue of the emperor and people need to come and pay oblations and worship and respect. And that decree applied also to the land of Israel. And most towns were obviously under tremendous sufferance to at least put something there. Remember that the administrative center for the Romans, the administrative center of Judea was not Jerusalem. It was in fact Caesarea. That had been established already in the time of Herod. So there was Roman garrisons right throughout the land of Israel and most towns were able to either ignore it or put it off or just put it somewhere in a corner. But there was one town that was particularly upset. And that was the town. And I know that some of you are going to go, oh, wait a minute, but that, you mentioned that town the other night. That configures later in Jewish history. But the first time we really hear about this town, which is a town on the coast of Israel, a town of Yavne, People wonder why Yavna was chosen later on, which we'll get to, but the town of Yavna went, some guys went overnight and they took this statue of Caligula and they busted it apart. They smashed it. The consequence of that is that Caligula went even more hardcore and announced that he was going to have a 10-foot gold statue of himself erected in the Holy of Holies in the temple. You can imagine the effect of that on the population. This is round about the year 3940. Now we sent at least two high level major delegations and you can read about those delegations by the guys that actually were there. One delegation was led by Agrippa, obviously on behalf of the Jewish people to go and speak to his old cool school chum and say, listen, I think it's time to calm down, this is not going to work, but obviously even Agrippa would have to be careful about how he spoke to Caligula. And the other delegation, the most famous delegation, was led by a guy from Alexandria, who is going to figure greatly in Jewish history for entirely different reasons, he comes from Alexandria, and he was a leader, a spiritual leader of the community of Alexandria, and a major, major philosopher in his own right. When we give the classes on Jewish philosophy, we will be talking about this person. This is a person you've all heard of, even if you're not sure how it configures and what his ideas are, but this person is known as Philo. Philo, a great spiritual leader and philosopher from Alexandria, led a delegation, and you can read it word for word in a famous essay by Philo called The Delegation to Gaius. Neither of these delegations, and I recommend that to anyone, because it's such a fascinating read, because it reads like as though it would happen today. You can imagine if the Jewish people had to send a delegation. Give me a look at the time. Oh my gosh. I know, (laughs) what a shock. Bottom line is, neither of the delegations were successful, and in fact, Gaius uh, said, no, no, no. I mean, they they said, do you realize what's going to happen here? Every Jew in the land of Israel is going to kill themselves before they would allow you to do that. And Gaius goes... (laughs) (laughs) They make the statue in Damascus. It's on its way from Damascus to Jerusalem to be installed when Caligula dies. For many, many years, the 22nd of Shvat was like a little mini Purim. It was regarded as a a festival day. The yacht side of Caligula was a festival for us (laughs) of the great miracle that we saw that happened. Obviously, after that comes Claudius Agrippa was quite instrumental in the election of Claudius to become Caesar, but Agrippa dies here. But already you can see that the arbitrary nature of the decrees and also the summary, I have to be quick now because I will, will not get to the point that I want to get to in the next five, six minutes. The, uh, not only the arbitrary decisions of the emperors themselves, but even of the Roman governors who were obviously attempting to exploit and extort as much taxation as they could from the populace. The real turning point, and I said this the other night, Remember, do you remember what year I said that we generally consider the great revolt to have started from? Yeah, it's 66. In 66, and remember, I know it seems like I'm giving a lot of detail, but you have no idea how I'm just giving headlines of headlines. When you open, just, just so that we can begin to talk about this era, we're really only contextualising it, but in 66 the Romans decided that they were going to give the population of Caesarea, the non-Jewish population of Caesarea, Roman citizenship, effectively relegating the Jewish population of Caesarea and the rest of the land of Israel to second-class citizen status. That is really the key that... There were other issues, but that's really the key that prompted the rebellion. And this rebellion, by the time we get to the year 66, that rebellion spread like wildfire. Not only, and in the first few days, in the first few days, we wiped, well, I say we, they, the, they wiped out the garrisons, the Roman garrisons in Jerusalem and elsewhere. And that early success precipitated a huge. Spread of the rebellion. It it didn't just happen in Jerusalem, it happened in the land right throughout the land of Israel, and it spilled over into the diaspora, the Jews of Alexandria, and even the Jews of Rome. And so you know it's no wonder that the Emperor Nero decided that it had to be put down extremely brutally and effectively and quickly. The Jews in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel set up a provisional government. A provisional government containing representatives of all the factions. They also set up an army with a structure of command, and they sent commanders out to different outposts because obviously they were aware that within a short amount of time, Rome would respond. You don't wipe out Roman garrisons without getting a response. And a response there certainly was, because Nero sent Vespasian... Vespasian, obviously it's the Vespasian Flavianus, the Flavians, you know that obviously that's the Vespasian that is going to go on to become emperor, and the whole Flavian dynasty, but at this time he's a general, very, very experienced campaigner, who turns up with uh, his son Titus who joins him, And together they've got something like six full Roman legions, about 60,000 soldiers, and they begin in the north. Now, one very, very important encounter that they have in the north, and I'm hoping that I'll be telling you something that you know of, but we're just putting it in perspective. Obviously, they arrive here and they start in the north. Now, the person in charge of the northern command of the Jewish defence force set up by the provisional government to deal with the Roman invasion was a guy called... Perfect. Perfect. I can see already there are people in this room who know... That means that if I can't be bothered giving the rest of the talk, I'll just hand it over. It's brilliant. (laughs) Yosef Ben Matityahu. And we know him more famously... I mean, Yosef Ben Matityahu was in charge of the Northern Command. This is the incredible thing. When Vespasian's forces encountered him quivering in a cave, and there are various accounts of that. They said, hi, he said basically, I'm Yosef Ben Matityahu, I'm the northern commander of the Jewish defense forces against uh, your invasion. Uh, I'm obviously not a very good commander. I mean, you know, my forces have been wiped out and you've found me quivering in a cave. However, however, I'm not just a commander. I'm a brilliant writer and I'm a great hist- I reckon I'll be a great historian. Why don't you just have me stick with you and I'll write the great conquests of Vespasian and Titus and the Flavians? And coming from me, a Jew, there will be no greater testament to your conquest and capturing of Judea than my writing about it. And Vespasian buys that. He says, hey, gee, look, That's not a bad argument. So he keeps who we now know of course famously as Josephus and he keeps Josephus with him not only for the duration of the campaign in Judea he brings him back to Rome and Judea, Josephus is going to sit in Rome for the rest of his life writing the history of the Flavians. I mean some of you will have seen the works of Josephus. It's massive. So That becomes one of the primary sources, not the only source, but one of the primary sources of our knowledge of everything that goes on here. It's extremely fascinating that there are some accounts that are the same story, but we find between Josephus and our other historical sources, such as the Roman records, but also the Talmudic records, that we have conflicting opinions of exactly who is important in those pictures. But the stories are completely parallel. How are we going for time? Sorry? Well, I I wanted to allow time for questions, but I will go on for another three or four minutes. Are there likely to be questions? There are? All right. Okay. 68, obviously, as we discussed, you know. Now, I wouldn't... the interesting information is lining up in my mind so fast that I have to choose exactly which direction <laughs> we'll go in. But we'll try and bring it in together very quickly in two or three minutes. And we'll talk about this later if you want. Uh, the second in command. The second in command at the destruction of Jerusalem. I spoke the other night about the famous encounter between Rabbi and ben Zakkai and Vespasian. I, what I didn't mention is that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the spiritual leader of the age during the siege of Jerusalem. And you have to remember the siege of Jerusalem was not a simple thing. One of the things that Vespasian did was take people who fled from the city and crucify them around the walls. Not because Vespasian was particularly cruel in himself, but in order to com- completely horrify and demoralize the inner population. But what they did was they didn't just crucify them, they crucified them all at bizarre angles. So people would wake up in the morning, look over the walls to see the Roman garrisons outside and see their loved ones crucified at bizarre angles. The population inside, and especially the different factions, remember that as Vespasian came down from the north, the zealot factions fled from the Romans... Towards Jerusalem. So by the time we get to the siege of Jerusalem in 68, all of these various factions are competing for control of Jerusalem itself during the course of the siege. So there's a lot of inner fighting. It's really only till the last minute, not till the the Romans broke the walls actually, on the 17th of Tammuz in the year 70, that we actually got our act together and unified our response, and they did not capture Jerusalem. Easily. Men, women, children threw themselves in front of Roman swords. The Romans had to fight inch by inch to get to the temple. It took Anyone been to the Old City? So you know how big the Old City is? It's probably about the size of the Federation campus here, right? It took them three weeks to get to the Temple Mount. That's every inch of the way was bought in blood. Tens of thousands of people died when the Romans came into Jerusalem. It's not a simple thing. On the eve of the destruction, so they'd already captured Harabayut and the Temple Mount. And on the eve, on the 8th of Av, on the eve of destruction, Titus calls a summit meeting of his commanders to decide what the strategy is going to be for the next day. And the second in command is a guy called Tiberius Julius Alexander. Tiberius Julius Alexander. People, you know, people think, oh, Titus came, he destroyed the temple, what a bad guy, I went back to Rome, but a Arch of Titus, blah. It's so complex. Titus's second in command was Tiberius Alexander, a nephew of Philo, a Jew who at a young age had said, you know what, I'm not going to really do this whole Jewish thing, I'm going to send my Talit back to my parents and I'm going to go into the Roman army. He climbed up the ranks and was the second in command of the destruction of Jerusalem. Moreover, when Vespasian had first entered the land of Israel, Agrippa's son, Agrippa, remember Agrippa? His son, who's the guy who we call Agrippa II, and his sister, so Agrippa's daughter, so his two children, fled and made their way to the Roman encampments. They turned up and said, Hi, we're we're Agrippa's kids, so obviously look after us. And Vespasian took them in from the moment that Berenice, Agrippa's sister, Agrippa the Second sister, so Agrippa's daughter, and Titus saw each other, yeah. love. <laughs> love. This was one of the great love affairs of this entire period, so much so Titus eventually brought her back to Rome, and it was only the intervention of the Senate that stopped her being the consort of the emperor. People do not realize how complex this was. Titus is sitting there. Where was he sitting in this great big council meeting? Where did it happen? Where in Jerusalem are you going to get the best view of Harabai to work out your strategy? No, no, the Temple Mount is where the Temple is. That's what they're going to attack. Not the Mount of Olives, but Mount Scopus. Right where the university is now is where Titus sat with his war council and they decided not to destroy the Temple. Josephus writes that the temple was in fact destroyed by accident. I've got one more minute. I want to backtrack for one second. When Yochanan bin Zakkai had got himself smuggled out of Jerusalem, and remember I said that he had that famous conversation with Vespasian where he asked for the town of Yavne, the town of Yavne that had already preconfigured in history. He wanted that as a central location to Rebuild the spiritual and educational life of the Jewish people in the wake of the destruction. Who smuggled him out? Who smuggled him out? Two of his students. And I'm going to end on this point because these students are going to become the real foundation of where the Talmudic period is going to go. He was smuggled out by two students, and I know that it's not always nice to be pounded by names, but it's not so bad, we'll work it through. Eliezer ben Hircanus, And Yehoshua. I'm transliterating as I'm going. so Sometimes my transliteration is not good. Ye, Yehoshua, rather than write it in Hebrew. Yehoshua ben Hananiah. Some people think that the rabbinic class of the first century, the guys who laid the foundations of the Mishnah, were a homogenous group. They weren't. They themselves were divided into an established landed gentry and a plebeian class. Eliezer ben Hirkunos came, both students of Yohanna ben Zakkai, but coming from entirely disparate parts of the Jewish world. Obviously, the temple's destroyed. You can imagine that that is not just a subject in itself. That's a ginormous topic, the destruction of the temple. And in 70... That happens in 70 and in 73 is the last mopping up of all the zealot defences. They didn't just destroy the temple and leave, they spent the next two to three years cleaning up all of the zealot resistance and eventually, as you know, the zealots ended up in in the year 73 on Masada. And that is the episode of Masada happens in 73 as a result of the end of the Great Revolt. So the first big daddy revolt that we're looking at is 66 to 73, that includes the destruction of the temple, that ends with Masada, but inside which, inside which, are the kernel and the seed of what is going to grow out of that destruction, which is the the whole dimension of the faith and practice system of Jewish spirituality and Jewish education and guidance in the world that is going to keep the people of israel in the world and moving forward in their historical purpose thank you please please be aware that we didn't get to where we needed to get to but we will next week i'm now i'm familiar with the structure we'll go a little bit more yeah so here's the issue we have very limited time so you can ask a quick question we need a quick answer and then we'll close it out but we promise we have 27 more presentations and opportunities, and this is a class series that continues next Thursday. Yeah. So, quick question what, mean, what means Chazal? Oh, very, very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Obviously, that's a great question because if we say a term and we don't, um, this is Chazal here. Who are Chazal? Chazal is an acronym, it stands for Chachameinu. Our sages Zichronam live may their memory be for a blessing. It's the classic term used within the Jewish textual continuum for really the rabbis that are creating and mentioning the great genres. Of literature that emerged from this period because I'm going to be discussing phenomenal events throughout this 500-year period in the course of which we produced not only the Talmud, we also produced this phenomenal uh, genre of exegesis and wisdom literature called the Midrash that we're going to talk about, uh, as well as, you know, sprouting two world religions, have... And as well as taking on Gnosticism, Manichaeism, Neoplatonism, you know, we're pretty busy intellectually, <laughs> despite the fact that all of this so the guys who were doing all that in that period, when we just use the generic chazal, we're referring to the rabbis of the Talmudic period. The Talmud and I'll finish on, the Talmudic period itself, as I said the other night, is divided into two sub periods. Don't panic, don't get confused. One sub period goes to here, that we call the Tannaitic. The Tanaitic is the period that produces the Mishnah. All of these terms we'll talk about. That's the Tanaitic period. If you're mentioned in the Mishnah, you are a Tanah. And the next 300 years subset of the Talmudic is called the Amoraic. And they are the guys that produce the Gemara, the discussion on the Mishnah, and hence the Talmud. So those are the two. But particularly the Tanaitic. When we talk about Khazal, we're talking about all of them, but particularly the guys who created the Mishnah. I hope that answers that. Thank you. That's pretty amazing. He's got all that in his head. So, <laughs> congratulations. I, I'm congratulations.